Father, we know your world is made up of complex parts, millions, billions, everyone doing their part. So, Lord, from soldiers to mechanics to wives back home to wars fought, conflict solved, Lord, throughout all of history, you are God over it all. And Lord, you use all the crises and the pain and suffering of this wicked fallen earth to make an arena into which Jesus Christ could come and finally say once for all, there is peace. Lord, we look forward to the day when he returns and there will be peace on earth, never interrupted by gunfire, gang violence, broken homes, broken hearts. Today, I'm grateful that in this gym, for anyone who wants it, there is peace with God. All sins removed, all guilt forgiven, the hope of heaven promised because he has died And he was sinless. And he bore our sins in his body and he has risen from the dead to never die again, to reign forevermore and to return, hopefully, soon, maybe today. Would you prepare someone, O Lord, today to meet the coming Prince of Peace that they may be part of an earth that hurts no more. For all those who hurt today, Lord, may they find comfort In the presence of Christ, the one who has come to taste our pain, to taste death. The one who left everything in glory to become poor, misunderstood, rejected. So that he can truly say, I understand and I am here. Thank you, Jesus, for all you did. We owe you everything. And today our desire is to give you everything. In your name I pray. Amen. Memorial Day is a sobering uh, day in the life of our nation. It's a deeply meaningful day because it provides us with another opportunity to thank the people that have worn the United States uh, all over their clothes and their arms and their, their weapons and have fought for freedom, not just for this country, but for those victims of injustice around the world so that others could live. I was, I'm always interested every Memorial Day, (laughs) they didn't make it again, so sorry, got to learn why that's happening. I had some wonderful pictures of, um, of the Vietnam Memorial, always every, every Memorial Day I like to just soak in what's happening around the United States, and this year I I learned that, um, that five million people every, every year visit the Vietnam Memorial to honor the 58,000 men and women who died in Vietnam or are still missing in action, and, um, and it's interesting that the Vietnam Memorial was not paid for with government money. It really wasn't paid for with large institutions. It was paid for by the gifts of 275,000 Americans. Because we as a people enjoy, we find great privilege in honoring the life and death of those who have served overseas in America's wars. Jan Scruggs is the, is the founder of the uh, the of the foundation raised the $8 million for 
the Vietnam Memorial, and he said, when he was asked why he did it, he said, I wanted to build a memorial that would remind everyone forever in this country the cost, the cost of war. Whether it's necessary or unnecessary is a decision that many administrations will battle with all their, their life before and after they are in office, but it is a great cost. No other person in history shows the virtue of sacrificing their life for the purpose of someone else's freedom, as does our Lord Jesus Christ, because He's the only person in the world that was born for the sole purpose of dying. It's not like He made a split-second decision toward the end of His life, should I live or should I die? Every moment of His life, He was looking at His death saying, that's what I came for. Every lesson He taught, every miracle He performed, every demon He cast out, his mind looked over the heads of the crowds at the cross and said, I was born to hang on that cross. Every moment he was thinking about the day when he was laid down his life for the freedom of others. And I want to look at that this morning in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, the courage and the compassion of, of this, man's, this, man's, this man's life. The book of John is really a book of miracles that John calls signs. Because the miracles are not just there to entertain or impress. They're always pointers, just like a highway sign tells you go this direction. The miracles of the book of John, which are many and are profound, always point you beyond the miracle of the healing or the feeding. They point you to the greatness of the one who performed the miracle, Jesus, and the greatness of his kingdom that he's inviting people into. So he calls miracles signs. The last miracle that was performed in the book of John was when Jesus Christ in a town called Bethany raised a man from the dead. And we won't have time to, to look at that whole story, just sort of give you a flyover because we're moving past it to what happened after it. But Jesus is in this town of Bethany, or he's away from it. He hears about a sick friend named Lazarus who's dying. Jesus chooses not to go healing. Lazarus had two sisters. He loved them, Mary and Martha, just as much as he loved this man, Lazarus. They were sort of best friends in Jesus' inner circle, but he chose not. He chose not to heal him because his plans were to raise him from the dead so that he could say these profound words in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Now, if I were to say those, word, let me, those words today, see how they come across. Let me introduce myself today. I'm Richard Smith, the pastor of Hope Point, and I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. How's that working for you? A man who speaks like this is either God or a lunatic. But that's why John had this miracle recorded in John chapter 11 so that Jesus could say, I'm the only person who can stand beside every casket and I'm the only person who can stand at every grave marker of every cemetery and at any moment I can command that body to live again no matter how long they've been dead. That is a profound delineation that marks Jesus Christ different from any other religious ruler. So it's the final miracle that Jesus performed when he raised this man from the dead. And it is the miracle that sealed his death sentence. Raising Lazarus from the dead was 
what caused Jesus' enemies to say now he must die. John eleven forty five. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went on to some. Of, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. These verses. I can appreciate because they show for 21 centuries how people have been reacting to Jesus Christ. He performs miracles. He blesses your life with jobs. And some people believe and some people go attempt to eliminate his influence in their life. Some people look at Jesus raising a man from the dead and say, I put my full trust in him. Others go try to end his life. Influence. Now, I love verse 45 because verse 45 is really an answer to prayer. Many believed right before he performed the miracle to raise Lazarus from the dead. Sometimes it's easy to skip over this. Jesus prayed about what he was about to do. In verse 41, 42, Jesus prays. He's looking at the dead man's tomb and he says, Father, I thank you that you hear me. I know that you always hear me, like he said, I know you hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. So in John eleven forty two, 42, he prays that the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus would produce belief, and a verse later, many believed. So I want to stop right here and just ask you a question. When you came to church today, you pray for me. Did you pray for me hard? I want you to notice what's happening here. Jesus knows he's about to raise somebody from the dead, yet he knows the human heart is so hard, eyes are so blind, that he says it's still a possibility, strong possibility, that this miracle can happen and everybody still stay lost in their sins. So he prays, may they believe when they see the miracle. Maybe I'm not making this clear. I have no power to raise the dead. I don't have anything to reach into my bag of tricks to help create belief in Spartanburg. So if Jesus needed prayer, even though he had resurrection power, how much more do we need pray for? prayer for this church if he needed to pray that they would believe you and I need to pray for this city and for the nations to believe I asked last Sunday night in a business meeting that you if you're good friends with somebody already in this church or maybe outside of this church as I am with my primary prayer partner but would you renew your friendship with those that you have spiritual intimacy with and begin praying for our arrival in our building on July 14th and uh, at least once a week, maybe twice a week, begin to pray for the, a brand new expression of the power of God because I can assure you a new building is much less powerful than a dead man coming back to life. That building is not an answer for this city. I need, the band needs Volunteers, staff needs, the city needs, the nations need you praying with each other on the phone or in person more than ever. Well, many believed, but because of the hardness of human hearts, 
Some saw Lazarus rise from the dead and still didn't believe. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Don't want to get too historically uh, deep here and lose you, but I just want to let you know when you hear the word in the Bible, Sanhedrin, think Supreme Court. Think utter power. All the Jewish people were under the dominion, they were occupied by Rome, so they didn't have full sovereign power within Palestine, but they had a lot of power. Rome gave them power through the Sanhedrin to govern their people. The Sanhedrin was the legislative body over the Jews. They, They wrote laws, they enforced laws, and the Sanhedrin was composed of two groups of people, Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees, they were interested in, hey, hey, let's make sure that everybody obeys every single word in the Bible at all times. And the Sadducees, they said, well, we're not, we don't really care so much about obedience to the Scripture. We just want to make sure that we don't get in trouble with Rome and lose our nation." So Pharisees were spiritually, religiously conservative. Sadducees were spiritually liberal. All they cared about was political power and collaborating with Roman authorities as to not create a disturbance in the various cities that were under under, uh, Rome's authority. And the big fear in all of this was the loss of the nation, that Rome would see these people coming to Christ and see it as too much activity in one city, and they would take away their, their political freedom. So this is a meeting in the Sanhedrin. This is the conversation inside the Supreme Court building in Parliament. John eleven forty seven. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So this rising, worshiping crowd that's showing more and more allegiance to Jesus Christ, especially after the raising of Lazarus from the dead, is creating such notoriety. The Sadducees and the Pharisees meet in the context of the Sanhedrin and the parliament to say, we have to put an end to this. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were afraid that their sovereign state against Rome would, would be taken away. It's interesting, if you read one chapter earlier, John chapter 10, there was a decision in John chapter 10 to kill Jesus. But that was only a local decision because they only saw him as a local threat. He had claimed to be God, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. So they picked up stones, they were going to kill him, that was a local problem. Now they perceive this as a, as a threat regarding national security. So everything has amped up in, in intensity. And it's interesting, when you look at this council of people, no one there is asking what is true No one is asking. You not see any conversation. Did Lazarus rise from the dead? No one is asking what is true. Everybody is asking what is expedient. Everyone is asking 
What can we do to protect our domain? What can we do to protect our comfort? What can we do to protect our power, our wealth, and our privilege? But no one is asking the question, is Jesus Christ worth following? Because they don't want to know that. They just want to protect their turf. So in response to this alleged national security threat, one of them, the chief priest, which would be sort of head of parliament, chief Sadducee, chief priest, speaks. Interesting what he says. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Sadducees were, no, were known for being pretty rude. Proof. End point. He says, you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. I don't care whether he rose from the dead or not. That's what he's saying based on his next statement. You do not realize it is better for you as a nation that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. So from that day on, they plotted to take his, his life. If you are a fan of literature, this is called dramatic irony. When a speaker in the play says something much larger than he knows. He's ignorant, but his words are wise. So this is dramatic irony, because this is what Caiaphas was saying. We must kill Jesus so the Romans won't kill us. If Jesus dies, the nation will live. So instead of the nation being punished, let Jesus be punished. And that's what Caiaphas was saying. Now, if you don't see the irony in his words, John, the writer of this gospel, helps you. As he often does, he stops telling the story and adds his own commentary. I love this guy. He just gives you like, oh, and uh, Jake, this is what's really happening. And so this is what he says. John stops and talks to us. John tells us, Caiaphas did not say this on his own. <laughs> Love that. But as high priest that year, he prophesied. That means he spoke for God. Evil as the day is long, and he's speaking for God. He prophesied that Jesus would die. Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. I can assure you that Caiaphas had no idea that's what he was saying, but that's what he was saying. If you don't uh, follow and read a lot of theology, this is called the doctrine of substitutionary atonement is what is happening in these most important verses in John chapter 11. And if you don't like that whole phrase, just think the word substitution. Pilate, I mean Caiaphas, is, 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 is pronouncing the doctrine of substitution even though he didn't know it because God, through, his, through Caiaphas' words, this is what God was saying through Caiaphas' words. I will substitute Jesus for you. 
I will let you condemn my son who's innocent that I might forgive you who are guilty. I will let him be crucified by demonic hatred so that you will not be crushed by divine wrath. How ironic is this? Both God and Caiaphas, both of them wanted Jesus to die. But for different reasons. Caiaphas wanted Jesus to die to save Israel from political trouble. God wanted Jesus to die to save the world from eternal hell. Both wanted Jesus to die. So it's glorious. God is the one who brought these words to Caiaphas' mind. Because God was declaring something about Jesus that Caiaphas didn't see. Caiaphas says, you do not realize, this is what Caiaphas says, it is better for you that he die. This is a very evil man. He's plotting murder of an innocent man. That would make you evil. He's a very, very evil man, and yet he's exactly right. It is better that Jesus die. It's the most wonderful thing in the world that Jesus died. It's not just better, it's infinitely, gloriously, wonderful, supremely better, it's immeasurably better that Jesus die than the nation perish. So God was speaking much deeper than Caiaphas. Caiaphas said, we want Jesus to die so the Romans won't kill us. And God says, I'm going to substitute my son so I don't have to kill you. Interesting, though, because we've seen this over and over again, Caiaphas did speak truth here. This is true. But his heart was guilty. God made him say truthful things out of a guilty heart, but Caiaphas still had to pay for the sin in his heart. Because Caiaphas said, we're going to try to kill Jesus and we're going to protect our nation. But for those of you who follow history, what happened to the nation of Israel in A.D. 70? It was leveled by the Romans because long after Christ had been crucified and resurrected, because the Romans believed that the Jews were up to conspiracy and they leveled the capital city of Jerusalem and even pulled a plow across the temple to say, take that. So by trying to protect themselves in their own strength, they actually set themselves up for destruction. So I don't know what you're working on in your life right now, but I can tell you, you solve it in your strength. You get ahead of God and you say, I can't wait on God. I can't trust God. I don't, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to, I'll go ahead and I'm not going to wait five years for God to bring a mate in my life. I'm going to get married now. Listen, you just, every time you get ahead of God and try to fix something in yourself, you set yourself up for destruction. You don't have the strength to solve you. Wait on God. Get ahead of God. And the only thing that results is unnecessary suffering. But the good news of John, the good news of the gospel of John is Jesus not only died, 
It was better. It was not only the good that he died for the nation of Israel, but for everybody in this gym as well. I, I cannot believe this statement. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only, you really need to be grateful this verse is in the Bible, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. That's us. Those who are non-Jews. I I love that phrase, the scattered children of God, because they're all over the world, and God, the preaching and missionaries and caregiving and orphanages and everything he did during the night while we slept and early this morning and throughout the day, God is gathering the scattered children of God into the church around the world right now because Christ died. The scattered children of God being brought back. I'm doing a wedding this afternoon. Ronnie and I are doing it. Uh, we're doing it together because uh, Caitlin Ebling is marrying uh, West Pena, who is from, from the DR. So Ronnie is translating. Uh, so my weddings normally are between 18 and 22 minutes, which I don't be bragging, but I can get you in and out of there pretty good. But obviously now with translation, that doubles it. So we're looking at a 36 to 44-minute wedding in 95-degree heat. It's outside. It's going to be so hot. (laughs) And I'm so happy because I met so many people last night at the rehearsal. I met these three young men from the DR, uh, Emmanuel, Ricardo, and Moses. And this says, these men... I love it. These are the scattered children of God from the Dominican Republic that God has brought in to, to the church. Jesus Christ died for the DR. John 11 is about talking about people in the DR. And then when I, when I left there, Mike and Joy kindly called me and said, one last picture, one last moment with, with uh, our exchange student, Shashal, and out at the new building. And, and so I went out to our new building and Mike and Joy and Xiao Xiao were out there before she got on a train this morning to, or late last night to head to Washington, D.C. with her mother. And I'm just so grateful that this morning in, in China and, and all over that country, God is bringing the scattered children of God to Jesus Christ in, in China. And what a thrill it was to come back last week from our overseas trip and to, to once again see images of the scattered children of God in Asia and to see Ronnie in the, just expressing the joy of his heart, walking among the peoples, the scattered children of God. And there's so many of them. And so if you, if, if you just are wondering why this continual emphasis on missions, it's in John 11. He died for the Jews and the scattered children of God. And so it's not like, do I feel like going? It's like, we we need right strategies, wise strategies, but we just always, it's going, going, going for the scattered children of God for whom He died. It couldn't be more, more biblical. The scattered children of God, which John even talked about in, in the beginning of his gospel. For God so loved who? The world. Not Jews, not Americans. Not South Americans, the whole world were the scattered children of God.
live. Well, by this time, Jesus was an outlaw. You raise a man from the dead, Pharisees, Sadducees, meet in the Sanhedrin. Those 71 Supreme Court justices pretty much cast a death sentence over your life, and so it's time for Jesus to leave, and so he does. John eleven fifty four. therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea, and instead he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. You know what I love about the Lord here? Wise. Jesus Christ is willing to lay down his life, unwilling to throw away his life. Because if he would have been caught in any of the outlying vicinities, surely there was money on his head, i.e. Judas Iscariot. <laughs> surely there was money on his head. So he says, no, it's not time for me to die. I'll die when I want to or when the Father wants me to, where the Father wants me to. So he withdrew. And so he stays there. I don't know how long he stays there, but a week before his death, he starts making his way back into Jerusalem and Six days before he gets to Jerusalem, he comes to Bethany. And this is precious because this is the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is where all the commotion started. So he goes back to visit the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and throw, throw, throw him a dinner. And my goodness, what was that dinner like? Wow. So we don't have time to look at that, but that's the time when you know Mary preciously anointed Jesus you know, with, with her perfume, preparing him for his burial, even though she didn't know it. God knew it. And we don't have time to look at that, but look what happened as a result of him coming back to town. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there at, in Bethany with Lazarus, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So now word is out. Jesus in Bethany, Lazarus is there. And this crowd is going to grow and grow and grow all the way with him until he enters Jerusalem. So, therefore, the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing him. Now, I threw this verse in here this morning just to remind mine, everybody, but especially my precious students that absolutely stay glued to me every time I speak for the entire time. Um, let, me, let me just tell you about sin. Let me tell you one thing about it as you go off to middle school, high school, college, whatever. It grows more than you plan for it to grow. Remember back in John 11, the council decided they could stop this thing by killing one man. Now, they say, we need to kill two. So whatever you're messing with in life, it will grow. Sin always grows more than we plan for it to. Now it's time for Jesus' ultimate mission of his life to die, so he enters Jerusalem. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, I'm telling you, I, you know, this was Memorial Day, and I was just wanting to see, could I tie something in together? Listen, 
There's never been a more courageous person in all of history than Jesus Christ at this point of his life. He is entering Jerusalem. Now, he, let me tell you what was going on in Jerusalem. Passover. According to one estimate, if you were a family member, you could use one family, one family of ten could use one lamb for sacrificing for the Passover celebration. One, one lamb, ten people. One census that was taken in Jewish times of how many lambs that were slaughtered during one Passover was 275,000 lambs. So again, your ratio of 1 to 10 would put that at 2.75 million people in Jerusalem that week, a city that holds 250,000. So he's walking, and even if you say that's from Josephus and he exaggerates all the time, which he does, even if you chop it in half, 1.3 million people, we're there. So 1.3 million people in a city that holds 250,000, and they're all clamoring over Jesus Christ coming in. He knew he was going to die. What courage, what courage, what courage. Never a braver man in history than Jesus Christ right here coming into that city. Because he's not going to be hidden anymore, is he? He knows what he's walking into. Oh, such God-glorifying courage. I was reading this week of, uh, you know, Martin Luther had, com- he had strong convictions that the Catholic Church in his day in the 16th century was headed in a terrible, terrible direction, which it was. So he went and posted 95 complaints against the religious establishment, and he posted them on the Wittenberg door in Germany. And he got in all sorts of trouble, and the religious authorities hated him, and they chased him down, and he hid in a castle for a while, and finally they summoned him and said, you have to appear at a diet, a diet, a meeting, the diet, he didn't have to go on diet, you have to meet, you have to appear at the diet of Worms, like a council of Worms, Germany. And he was warned that if he went there, that it would be the end of his life. And this is what Luther responded. I would go to Worms if there were as many devils in that city as there are tiles on the housetops. I would still go. Then he was warned that Duke George is going to capture you if you go to the Diet of Worms. He said, I'm going to go to that city even, even if it is raining Duke George's. This is a small glimpse into the courage of Jesus Christ. He knew he was going to die in Jerusalem. But he went there because he was determined to bring peace with God to you. Look at this statement. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it's written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey. Man, I love this verse. Couple reasons. Number one, it is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 9, one of the many Old Testament prophecies of how Jesus would come. One, that he would come on a donkey. Two, I love it because a donkey in Eastern culture was an animal of great nobility. When a king came to enter a town for war, he came on a horse. When he came to enter a town for peace, he came on a donkey. So Jesus in his first coming to earth is coming to mankind, to men and women, boys and girls, and saying, I am coming that you might have peace with God. (sighs) 
So this is the time to make peace with God right now. But let me remind you, if you read the rest of the Bible in Revelation, when you see a picture of Jesus Christ there, he's riding on a great white horse. He's not coming for peace his second time. So you got a million plus people in Jerusalem excited about the Passover, excited about Jesus, and look what the Pharisees say. They, you know, they had just gotten out of their meeting in the Supreme Court. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. I just love it again. Again, evil, evil people speaking truth. Mm-mm. Now that is precious. Evil, evil people saying exactly what God is saying. The whole world. Jesus Christ is a Savior for the whole world. And they're preaching our message for us. Thank you. And they will end with this message, with this verse right here, because this is where I really wanted to stir your hearts today in terms of our own mission for a church. About the whole world. And I will end with this verse. It looks out of place. Most people miss it. I want to end with it. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Greeks would be people who believed that there was one God, but they were not into Jewish ceremony. They were not Jews, but they wanted to follow the God of the Jews without the ceremony of the Jews. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, because he had a Greek name, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and with a request, Sir, they would, we would like to see Jesus. I hadn't seen this yet in the Gospels. The nations, the nations are beginning to come and beg to see the Savior. This statement, we don't know anything else about what happened. All they said, we want a meeting with Jesus. Did they get a meeting with him? We don't know. John just tells us this because, remember, John is the writer of Jesus coming for the whole world. So he gives us insight into the whole world coming right now. This statement was so important when Jesus heard it that it triggered, triggered him to say, now's the time. He didn't say anything about the Greeks. He just said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Speaking of His crucifixion. As soon as Jesus Christ saw the nations coming, He said, now I will die for the nations. Gosh. So I hope today, I beg you today, that you would be among those who say, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I have presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to a good many people this week outside this church by providences that were just a softball pitch for me. And I certainly regard that opportunity this morning as pretty easy for me to ask you, would you like to see Jesus today and be saved and become a follower of His? So what have we learned today? I'll wrap it up in three sentences that are not mine. I wish they were. Sentence number one, they're not on the PowerPoint. I want you to be strong in the face of hard times, knowing that God is in control and not evil circumstances. We learned that from Caiaphas. 
He thought he was in control when he said Jesus must die. No, God was in control of that statement. Jesus must die. So be strong in the face of hard times and seeming defeat because God will turn it all for good. He is planning it for your good. Number two, <laughs> in light of your ongoing sinfulness and your battle with sin, oh, I do not like the way that I've sinned this week against God. I do not like my, I failed. I do not like it. But in the ongoing battle with sin, would you forever rejoice in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ? God is not going to punish you because he chose to punish Christ instead. So in your own going battle with sin, please rejoice in substitution. And just give your guilt to God and be done with it. You failed, yes you did, but Christ died for your failure and it's done and it's settled. He is your substitute. And finally, if you love the fact that there is a substitute for your sin, will you not want to work with God and announcing the substitutionary work of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, would you join with this church in announcing that message to the nations? If you love it for you, would you love it for all? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the courage of our Savior to ride into Jerusalem that he might declare peace through the shedding of his blood. We thank you that some Jews did believe, and in the end, many will believe. But we pray for the nation of Israel today. We pray for the nation of America, the most blessed nation in the world, possibly the most ungrateful nation that's ever lived. Adoring creation over you, relying on substances and illicit behavior instead of worship. We are a sinful people. and We do not stop and consider the beauty of God riding on a donkey to declare peace instead of war. So I pray, God, in the name of Jesus Christ, that many today would say, I want to see Jesus. I want to see his love. I want to see his hope. I want to see his forgiveness. I want to see Jesus. I want to see him come into my life. I want to see him change my life. I want to, I want to see him change my family. I want, to, I want to see him do a great work in my children. I want to see him do a great work in my own heart. And God... This will only happen if you open blind eyes. We need more than a resurrection from the dead. We need the Holy Spirit to come upon this city and to come upon Asheville Highway, to come on, on the highlands, and all the inner city where we're working, broken homes, among gangs, among the vulnerable and the abused. We need the Holy Spirit to come upon all those who are fierce and bitter and hard in their heart. We need the Holy Spirit. Forgive us for not praying. Forgive us for assuming it's going to just be another good service on Sunday. Forgive us, Lord, for not praying 
for the move, for the new building, for the new expressions of ministry. Forgive us for not praying for the nations because, Lord, we want this peace to be shared globally. So we pray for Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, rich Americans, poor Americans, those in jail, those who own companies, those who are in the hospital, those who care for the sick. God, come in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.